want to go live on video but are a bit unsure where to start? Or maybe you already go live a lot but you are scared to sell. Download for free the Live Authentic Storytelling Guide. Six steps to infuse storytelling into your live videos. You'll get practical structure to help you convert your audience from raving fans to loyal customers. Go to www.livestorytellingguide.com and get your free guide today. Today's episode, my friends, is for all of you science geeks out there. We geek out in this episode in a way that I have not before, and it really could save your life, this episode. So you're really going to want to stay tuned. Iman McCurgery Hausman is my guest. She is a former Wall Street executive turned mindfulness-based therapist. She is a neuroimmunology researcher, TEDx speaker on mindfulness and its effect on gut microbes, which is also the topic of her published research with Dr. Deepak Chopra. She is the author of a book on the neural findings and autism spectrum disorder and works with children diagnosed with autism and ADHD. She also teaches mindfulness to physicians and corporations to address burnout. My friend is super smart, super engaging. You're going to love this episode, and I know you're going to learn so much. This is the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Demas. Let's go. Iman, I am so grateful that you are here today. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Nick. We met when I was teaching in a teacher training program that you were a part of, a yoga teacher training program, and we had an instant connection, Yes. and we maintained that over the years, and I'm very grateful for it. Me too. For those in my audience that haven't yet met you, tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and those fun questions. Well, first of all, I have to say I do enjoy thinking back about our yoga classes when you were teaching. One of the things you did with our class was made us do downward dog for like, how many minutes? Ten? <laughs> like, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know it could be such a workout, but the connection was undeniable and I really enjoy your friendship. Thank you for that. Now, I used to be on Wall Street. I was on Wall Street for 15 years, actually. That gives away my age a little bit. But I did, did have a very successful career. But I can talk about a little bit of the journey later on. But a personal tragedy had hit me while I was on Wall Street, which led me to meditate, start meditation. And after I started meditating, I started noticing that I was happier, which is kind of the, the most common side effect we know of. But I was also noticing that I wasn't getting common cold that severely. Like before before my meditation, when I was really stressed out, I was in a very bad relationship. What was happening was I, I was getting sick often. But of course, I left that relationship. That helped too. And I started <laughs> meditating. And strangely enough, let's say two, three months in, I started noticing differences in my physical body, physical health. As well as happiness, I was also very focused, much more than before. And I noticed I needed less number of hours of work, but I was getting more done. 
So I, I actually got eventually very far ahead in my career on Wall Street, but then I decided my heart wasn't in it anymore. I wanted to learn what was happening in my body when I did meditation. And it's such a simple technique. I wanted to teach it to others. I had to spread the word. So I basically quit my job and my dad, my very Indian dad, who really thinks a Wall Street job is amazing, he was shocked. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I have to do this. This is my calling. So I went back to school. I uh, did my second master's in social work. I became a clinical social worker, which is also another form of therapist. And I teach meditation to lots of doctors, mostly, and organizations, but mostly doctors, to prevent burnout. That's one of the primary things I do. I also research because that's another thing I started doing. I enrolled in a graduate program at NYU for neuropsychology, and I needed to learn what happens in the brain, because that's the only organ I can think of was changing when I meditated, because we think with brain. So that's kind of fundamentally a little vague area. So you've given me so much to go. I'm so excited <laughs> about this. I'm so excited about this, because there's so many ways we can go here. But I want to back up to, you said that there was a tragedy. There was something mm. that shifted for you. What was that, that was the catalyst for all of this change? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was in an abusive marriage. Although I'm very happily remarried to someone who really adores me. I have two kids with him and I love him dearly. But I, I wasn't so lucky the first time. Perhaps it wasn't luck. It was a bad choice on my part. Uh, but it was a physically, mentally abusive relationship. And um, I left. I literally ran away when he was chasing behind me at 9 p.m., I remember, to take a train to Long Island to stay with my aunt and uncle who saved my life, literally. So that was the tragedy. I got a divorce eventually, but it left me with a lot to think about. Like, you know, I wasn't spiritual. That's one thing before this. But uh, I gradually started believing in something that's bigger than me after this. I wouldn't say that I'm religious. I'm not religious. But I suddenly started noticing that... I have to dig deeper. And that's why uh, meditation became something I considered. It wasn't pleasurable at first. <laughs> Some, <laughs> it was terrible, actually. This is something I want to throw out there because, you know, meditation could be really miserable experience um, the first time or the first couple of times or first 20 times that you do because you have to sit still. You have to try to quiet your mind. What's interesting to me about that is you said you had to run. Yes. Literally run. Literally. To learn to then sit still. Yes. Yes. That's so interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned a very Indian father. <laughs> yes. Were you not raised in a religion or a household? What was the background there? How did, how, how was religion? Cause you said you're not religious. You weren't, that wasn't a part of your life. No. Were you not raised with it? Uh, that's a great question. You know what? I sometimes ask myself that too. So my family is, I'm by birth Hindu. Mm -hmm. My parents were never religious. Like, you know, we weren't asked to follow certain, any religious ritual, uh, which could be a big part of religions. But that said, I was raised in India 
which is interesting because in India, we actually have sort of like carnival type festivals around gods and goddesses. So it becomes more of a celebration of life than religious celebration. But I did grow up around that. There are lots of temples around me. It's just that I, you know, like many young kids, although there are many young kids that are super smart, super conscious these days, but I wasn't one of them. (laughs) I wasn't one of them. I was not spiritual. It's just never occurred to me that something bigger than me could exist. (laughs) Like, you know, it's almost like, you know, I was the center, not in a good way, in (laughs) an of my thoughts and I never thought of anything bigger than me before this. I've never told you this, but I was so intimidated by you (laughs) in in yoga because here it was, I was going to be this white (laughs) middle-aged guy who's going to teach this Indian, beautiful, stunning, gorgeous Indian woman about yoga, you know, about this, about Hindu practices (laughs) And I was I was intimidated at first. And of Aww. course you made it so not intimidating. But Well, you're much better than I am <laughs> to begin with begin with. That's a good start. I'm not flexible. I'm not even um but I do, do yoga. I find it very beneficial. I'm not very I don't think I'm so great at it. <laughs> but um I enjoy it. Well, the physical practice, right? Yes. Because because you are yes. a brilliant meditation teacher. You're you're Thank you're brilliant at what you do and, and everything is yoga ultimately. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, Nick actually you introduced me to Kriya Yoga which since then I have been practicing. So, yeah, I have been uh, reading, well, I read the autobiography of a yogi, and I've been, of course, like most yogis have, but his practices are really amazing. And I've done that, and I've seen effects that I haven't seen before. Yeah, Uh, they work, right? These ancient practices work. It works. So go back now to... Wall Street. Yes. Now I have to assume, and that this is just, you know, it's a big assumption on my part that it was incredibly stressful. Yes. And being a woman, it wasn't easy. I was in a man's world. I was also in the epicenter of the crash in 2008. I was working at Bear Stearns Asset Management. I wasn't a part of the teams that caused the crash. I I just want to make this very clear. (laughs) I want to make it very clear. That would not sit well with my conscience, but I experienced the whole thing. And strangely, you know, I've already been meditating before this happened. So when the crash happened, a lot of people struggled because it's not you know, it's your job, it's, you know, your earning, it's your family, also your family away from home. People were amazing. I have the best friends from Bear Stearns, but I actually did pretty well mentally when the crash happened. It was a night, I remember, uh, we heard about the crash and the fact that Bear Stearns was sold for a very cheap value to J.P. Morgan Chase, who rehired me. J.P. Morgan rehired me from Bear Stearns. So I was one of the few who was hired back. But just the news of the crash didn't shake me up as much as it would have, if I, I believe, if I didn't meditate. Yeah, because I'm sure around you, you were seeing people crash with the crash. Yeah. 
these are people's lives. I mean, at the end of the day, um, this was a company that was paying our salary. So you had to have seen a lot of burnout. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And strangely, I wasn't one of them. I was burnt out in my relationship more than my job. Mm -hmm. And that's why I started the meditation practice. But job has never been a source of burnout for me, partly because I always enjoyed what I did. Even when I was on Wall Street, I would find things. Finance is really not for me. But I always found things that I loved doing. Yeah. So I'm I'm probably all about, uh, what do you call karma yoga. Yeah. You know? Being of service in some way. Being of service is the mission of my life, I could tell. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of being in service, you've done a lot of research. Yes. Talk to me about your most latest research project, which is gut health. Yes. So thank you, because that is one of my favorite subjects. So I did two projects. I've been, so one project was with Deepak Chopra. I remember that. I was like, you're with Deepak? Wait, what? (laughs) Well, it's very easy to be starstruck with him. He's just an, he's an amazing guy. There is a reason why he is who he is. I've really learned a lot from him. So my first project on Gut Microbe was with him where we published a peer-reviewed paper on stress and the removal of stress through becoming mindful, which is the only way I can, I know of. There are many other ways, of course. How does that affect our inflammation, body's inflammation, and eventually the gut health? I can talk more about that, but let me also tell you what I'm doing now, which I'm very excited about. I'm collaborating with Stanford Neurosurgery and Harvard Bioinformatics. And basically, we're, we're doing a meta-analysis of all the work that has been done on mental illness and mood fluctuations and how those change our gut microbes. Okay, wow. That's a, let's go back to the first one. Yes. With because I have a feeling it informs the second one. Yes, it does. It does. So go back for those of us that are, you know, I'm not as smart as you are. Oh. <laughs> Come on. You know what? You're my teacher, so you're not allowed to say that. Oh <laughs> uh, gosh, I'm kidding, but 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 I do not know what you're my teacher on gut health. Yeah, we all learn from each other. We do. So tell us a bit about what is gut microbe, like what is it that your research found and how did you all find it? Yeah, so that's a great question. We actually started off with researching. So I met Deepak by accident at a restaurant in New York and we started, he was literally sitting at the table behind me. So all I was hearing is it was him and his wife. And I heard his voice and I asked my husband to tell me, is that Deepak Chopra? I asked him, he says, yes, it is. So uh, we started chatting and he's very approachable. So I told him that I was working at a brain lab doing uh, MRIs of brains to see how the brain changes when we have mental illness, certain mental illness. So he said, well, it's not just the brain, you know. I said, well, let me prove you wrong. (laughs) So that's how it started. Then we um, started researching. So I did the initial research and ultimately we collaborated. He had a lot of his research folks work with me as well, but he's one of my co-authors. But essentially he was right. I was wrong, (laughs) of course. (laughs) 
so that made me really surprised and that it also explained how I was not getting sick anymore when I was meditating. Yeah, so explain what it is that he was right about. What did you learn? Like a very good teacher, he just gave me a very open-ended question. I I don't think it's just the brain that changes. Find out what else changes. <laughs> and uh, so I did. And it was like a puzzle. So I started finding, okay, the brain changes. But the brain changes. The brain also has is responsible for the stress response. So essentially what we found eventually is stress. What is stress? We have to define that. Stress is an imbalance of our psychological state or physiological, physical or psychological. So a tiger attacks you. Of course, that doesn't happen anymore, but our ancestors used to face tiger attacks probably on a regular basis, cavemen times. So that's how stress response started in our bodies. It's a way to kind of say, okay, our body gets startled and shocked that a tiger is about to eat me. So we get the famous fight, flight, or freeze response, right? Yeah. But there is something else that also happens with that response. At the end of the fight or flight response, our body is really intelligently designed. It prepares for any wounds, any open wounds, in case a tiger did attack because it has big claws, create, you know, big wounds that could let germs in, and eventually we die. So stress response as a part of stress response, our body actually tries to fight back at those germs that could have entered through the predator attack. So it creates something called cytokines, pro-inflammatory cytokines, and creates a um, state of inflammation, which is our body's way of killing those germs by bombarding those germ germs. Think of an army, two opposing parties in, at war. So germs is one, and our body's cytokines are another. The cytokines go fire at them. But of course, our body is not smart enough sometimes to at first, to see where the wound is. So actually, just to be safe, because the wound actually could have let the germs in, and it could be anywhere. So these cytokine soldier cells go around slamming and firing every tissue in our body. Eventually, it also reaches the gut tissues. It fires them so hard, the gut wall gets leaky. It creates holes on the wall, leaky gut. We have heard of that is leaky gut. That's leaky gut. And that could happen from stress. So stress could be tiger attack or it could be my boss yelling at me. So, you know, the body doesn't differentiate between the two. So just imagine the potent, slightly poisonous situation we're throwing our body into every time someone is pissing us off. But the problem happens. It's once in a while. It's okay. But when it becomes chronic, the stress becomes chronic, this bombarding happens on a constant basis. And I, I mean chronic as in one to two weeks of stress. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, that's when the changes happen. And what one of the things we found was the at the end of all of this, our genes, you know, our body adapts even while we're living. We've heard of the word epigenetics. So it's how genes don't change structurally throughout our lifetimes. They actually change the way they express themselves, the way which genes are created 
uh, into proteins in our body. That changes, and that's epigenetics. So basically, if we're chronically stressed, our body is going to evolve to support this state of stress because that's the new normal. That makes so much sense to me that it becomes a new normal state, and you don't even realize how stressed you even are because it seems normal to you. Yes, yes, and the body just listens to you. But then, on the other hand, what we found was if you remove that stress, then the gut wall doesn't get inflamed or bombarded by these cytokines, soldiers, right? So the gut wall stays intact. Now, there is something very fun about the gut wall. It has 100 trillion germs just living on it, living off of it. They're called our microbiome. I mean, the microbiomes are all over our body, especially where the body interfaces with the outside world. But the biggest population of microbiomes are in our gut. So the gut wall, when we're not stressed, stays intact. The gut microbes are thriving. Now, when the gut microbes are thriving, when we're not stressed, something happens. The gut microbes produce a chemical that's called HDAC inhibitor. HDAC inhibitor turns out to be a chemical that's actually a medicine that's used externally for cancer immunotherapy to heal cancer, to heal inflammation. So you can produce that in your body when you're not stressed naturally Wow. through your gut microbes. So that's the big thing we found. That is huge. <laughs> that's huge. So how do I do that? <laughs> how do you do that? It's the main, you know, the pillars of wellness, wellness, because it's not just meditation. If I meditated and went to McDonald's once in a while, McDonald's is okay. But if I ate at McDonald's every single day, but meditated every single day, that's not going to work. Right. I'd still get the leaky gut. So we need to eat well. We need to think well. We need to work out, use our bodies. One of the things that I love about this is that you've given the science behind sort of what I naturally already kind of intuited, right, that I knew. Mm -hmm. But I love that that there's the scientific evidence to it now. And I really love the fact that you're saying it can heal itself. It can heal. And you can change your your trajectory. It's not like, oh, well, I have leaky gut. I'm done. There's nothing I can do about it. And also, that's the beauty of epigenetics. The genetic changes that I talked about are semi-permanent. What that means is you can reverse most of them, if not all. So in other words, if you stop stressing out and start doing all the good things for your body, meditating, eating well, working out, and generally being happy and satisfied with life, then you can reverse the gene changes in exactly the opposite direction. You can create a more permanent, semi-permanent change again in your body that would produce anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory chemical, which is just one of the very many things that the gut microbes produce when we're healthy, this HDAC inhibitor. You produce it naturally. So chances are you're going to stay healthy. I mean, we're all going to have to die at some point for some natural or unnatural causes. We can't always blame ourselves for being sick, but I think this is a good immunity so tell me now how the mood affects that, because that's part two, right, of your research. Yes. How yes. does the mood change or how does it affect what's happening in the system? 
That's great. So, you know, any change in mood, especially from going from low to high or high to low, any of those, especially low to uh, high to low, a crash of mood mimics stress response. So it's exactly the same response in our body that would have happened if there was a tiger attack. <laughs> That's it's it's so strange. I sometimes wonder if whoever engineered or however way it was engineered, our body was having fun with that design to see <laughs> how we, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I just wonder, like we're, we, we're such a product of an intelligent design, especially giving birth to two twin boys, you know, everything was happening naturally. Like they were growing up to have 10 fingers each, 10 toes. We don't have to do anything. It was designed innately, but then you have the stress response that's designed bizarrely like you know you have the same thing that happens in our body when we feel low compared to tiger attack so yeah so the mood changes the way we are looking so basically this is a little more academic research because we're we're basically that's why we need the bioinformatics group my accent <laughs> so, <laughs> to look at all the day so basically we're looking at any and all research studies that have been done throughout the world on how any form of mood change may have impacted or been correlated with gut microbe changes. Mm. So our goal is to then take all the studies numbers. So they all look at, they basically look at stool samples amongst other things of people say that are depressed, people that are anxious, People that have autism, severe autism, so there are mood changes associated with that or some traits like, you know, we, I could be less social. So they basically try to correlate the composition of the stool by looking at what gut microbes are in the gut of that person. And if that changes, the composition of the gut microbe changes for a person who is depressed, for example, versus someone who is healthier individual. And the goal of our study is to take all of those inputs of changes and basically create a map of what does a gut microbe look like when you have depression or you feel depressed, when you're anxious, when you're sad, whatever be the case. And the goal there is to find how these changes happen so we can possibly I'm hoping for a day that this happens. You can predict that someone may become clinically depressed before they do just by looking at their stool sample. Wow. I mean, wouldn't that be revolutionary? Yeah. We can prevent a lot of deaths. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many deaths that, you know, not even reported a lot of them through suicide. And if we could help those people, for example, before they went through such a state of mind that, you know, they had to do it. And I love this so much because it's it's sort of east meets west. Yes, yes. Totally. It's a whole it's holistic. Yes. It's a holistic view of the mind, body, spirit that you're giving us from two different perspectives, but it's all the same. It's all the same. I mean, my goal is to find a group of, say, people who are recovering from cancer and basically teach them meditation and do a before and after of their gut microbes 
versus those who didn't get the meditation but mm-hmm. got everything else for recovery. And to show, and I know we're going to see changes, healthier changes in the gut microbe. So there, you know, the gut microbe is interesting. It's more predictable than you think. So it's like a forest. Essentially, it's a, it's a forest in our gut. And there are two main species of gut microbes that you see in everyone's stool, bacteriodutes and firmicutes. It's the percentage between the ratio of the two fluctuate. And sometimes there are some other oddballs that get in when we're not mentally so feeling great uh, on a chronic basis. It has mm-hmm. to be a chronic thing. So to somebody out there who maybe has some some stomach issues and they're not even sure, is this leaky gut? Is this mm-hmm. is this stress? What is this? Yeah. What would you say to them? It's hard to tell what was the cause, what was the effect. Nobody knows. You know, we know that we're starting to acknowledge, okay, for sure, in the in the scientific world, we're st- starting to acknowledge that there is a an axis, what we call a connection between the brain and the gut. But which way does it work? Does the sadness come first and then the leaky gut or the leaky gut comes first and then we feel depressed? Nobody knows. There are other studies, too, that have been shown that the food we eat, some people have gluten allergy, for for example, and that could cause leaky gut. So there are certain things we have to be sure that we're not eating on a regular basis that disturbs our gut wall. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why maybe the gluten-free thing has been very big of late. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. And what's really fascinating as as I'm looking at this is your journey from stress, severe stress, while working on Wall Street, which is like the most stressful place in the world to work, maybe other than a hospital, right? Because that's life and death situation. That's real problem. That's real problem. But, but, you know, but it's a very, it's a pressure cooker situation that you were in to then becoming a meditation teacher Mm -hmm. to help those that you left ultimately. Yeah. And then on to this research and this scientist, you've become such a scientist (laughs) and it's brilliant for me to witness as your friend, your Mm -hmm. journey and the impact that you're making in the world. Thank you, Nick. I try. I try. It's fun. It's so much more fun to do what you want to do. My mantra is always the question that drove me to this point was I, I asked myself, Okay, like everyone else, I'm going to die at some point. Death will come. In my deathbed, while I was on Wall Street, I asked, if I die now, and ask myself, did I do something, my part, in this world? My answer would be no. So in a very morbid way, but it doesn't feel morbid to me, that's the question that led me to do what I'm doing. So yeah, my Indian father didn't approve at first but he's always been supportive he really inspires me he finally said okay i support you now i see what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) i love it all 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 these years later working with deepak you know having made impact with these studies and 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 now dad says yes i love it yes it's all about you're right it's actually all about the you know anytime there's a publicity that makes him proud (laughs) 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 <laughs> no I love offense. it. 
daddy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. But that's, I think that's of every parent, you know? Yes. My parents, when I was going to be a dancer first, right? And I was yes. a, a, a Broadway dancer and a Broadway performer and, and a director, and they didn't get it. They couldn't quite wrap their head around it. It was, it was, you know, go be a lawyer. My dad used to say to me, you like to argue, you like to talk, go be a lawyer. <laughs> you know, and then, and then until I was getting some press, until yeah. I was in Oklahoma City, I was, you know, a leader of the community there. And then on Broadway with the Tony Awards, it was then it was the press was like, okay, it's validated. It's validated in a way. And I think that that's a natural for parents. Yeah. And you probably, you know, with your kids can see it too. I would probably... You probably do it the same way. You, you're like, oh, but. <laughs> Ultimately, I think it comes from a good place. Yes. They want us, want to make sure that we are in a stable, secure place. And yeah. if we pick a risky profession where there is less potential of money. And I would say that stress that we're talking about, they're mm-hmm. worried that we're going to be so stressed out and sick and not well because we're not in a stable environment. Yeah. Little yeah. do they know that it was actually the reverse. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Totally. I agree with you. I would have been beyond stressed to, to, not, to not do what I loved and was passionate about. I would not want to be in a life where I'm not pursuing what I think is my dharma. What you said about what would I like my life to be, have I made a difference? If I were to die today, have I made a difference? And, you know, while that can seem morbid, as you said, I don't see it as morbid as much as just really questioning your dharma. Yeah. Have I followed the path? I mean, I, I do strongly think, and maybe this is my way of justifying this life, is that we all come with some form of assignment. (laughs) and uh, what is our assignment in life? What is our dharma? One's dharma could be loving, being a loving parent. It could be a love, you know, caregiver. It could be uh, whatever it is, doing something that you enjoy doing and gives you pleasure. That's your dharma. And I know for me, when I am doing those things, Mm. it feels fun. It feels playful. It feels light. It doesn't feel stressful. Yeah. You know, tying it in with stress, it doesn't feel that way. It feels amazing. It feels giving. It feels open. It's liberating. Yes. So beautiful. And so therefore, I'm healthy and you're healthy. Yes. Knock on wood. Yes. That doesn't mean that we don't get occasional you know, cold and cough. Of course not. It's just, you know, I have noticed that it's easier to bounce back Yeah. when those things happen. I mean, it is our bodies and it's going to get sick at times, but doing the right thing for ourselves is also important. It feels good knowing that I'm doing something related to self-care, be that meditation, be that eating the right food, doing exercises, whatever it is, listening to music, dancing, whatever it is. So how can my listeners find you? Where can they go to to get a meditation from you, to take one of your classes, to follow your research? Because I know there's some people out there that are going to be like, I need to know where this research is and how to do it. So where can they find you? Main hub to find me is my website. It's very easy. It's iman-mukherjee.com. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes so people can click yes. right on it. 
And I do have some YouTube videos. I have a TEDx talk on yes! what we you talked did, about. You did a TEDx talk about this. Yes. Yes. So they can look at that. I'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Yes. People can click and on And Google it. Scholar. You can also look look my name up and you'll see all the publications I have uh, done, which I love doing. That's clear that you're very passionate about it. And uh, I thank you for the for the research. As I said, finding the science be- behind what I've been being intuitive about. Yeah, you do it. Yeah, and you're backing it up. And there's nothing better because then more people will access it because of the work that you're doing. They will understand its importance. Yes. Yes. For some, I think my work is primarily, you know, of course, if you already are someone who believes that meditation does good for you, it would appeal to them. And you're just curious about the physical aspect. But my goal, the reason why I wanted to take the physiological approach is because there are lots of us that just don't want to talk about meditation because it's like the frou-frou thing, you know? It's not backed with science. It's not evidence-based. But my goal was to tell them, look, before you shrug it off, just give it a chance. Read these findings, research findings, and see what it does to the body. And what if you didn't do and were perpetually stressed out, how would your body react? So that was really one of the reasons why I started doing research, aside from the fact that I enjoy doing research. But yeah, that's a big part of my audience. I wanted to say, okay, just, just take a look. Take a look at my papers, read them, and then tell me if you think there might be a shot at meditation that you can give. Beautiful. And you're changing lives, so. Thanks. We love that. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends. Please rate, write us a review, and subscribe so we can spread the word and other solopreneurs just like you can find us.